we see became finite for 33 and a half years. The infinite became finite. He also continued to be infinite. The invisible became visible and tangible. You know, man could touch him and see him. And that's the great wonder of the birth of Emmanuel. That's another one of his names, right? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The word did not have a beginning. The word will never have an ending because the word is eternally God. All right, now let's look at another wonderful truth that, Jesus, uh, that John tells us about in verse 1 when he says, and the word was with God. It's also in verse 2 where it says, the same was in the beginning with God. This phrase speaks not only of the intimate fellowship that God the Father had with God the Son in eternity past, but it also tells us of the fact that God the Son, also called the Word, was and is a distinct individual from God the Father. Now, there are more than one person with a capital P in the Godhead, and Jesus Christ is one of those persons. This dwelling statement about the Word being with God is a very important reference to the doctrinal teaching about the triune Godhead. Although one God, we believe in one God, we are monotheistic, we're not polytheistic, we don't believe in many gods like the Hindus do. We are monotheistic, yet we are Trinitarian monotheistic because we believe that that one God exists in three distinct individuals. And yet those three members of the Godhead are totally inseparable in their purpose, in their attitude, in their character, in their thinking, in their love, in their all of their attributes, in their purpose. They're un totally, totally united. And this is another thing very difficult for us to uh, comprehend in our finite mind. But the teaching of the Holy Trinity is not just something that Christians have invented. Now, some might say well, this is just a, you know, something that has been made up by Christians. It is not taught in the Bible. It is, that's not true. It is a, a doctrinal teaching which is prevalent throughout the Old Testament as well. The Jews really should believe in a triune God. They do not. They are totally monotheistic. They believe God is one. But all throughout the Old Testament, it does teach a triune Godhead. In fact, the very first sentence in the Bible teaches us that there is a triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Because the word for God which is used in Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning, God, that word for God is plural. It's the word Elohim. Whenever you see I am on the end of a Hebrew word, it's plural. Now, if, if it was God singular, it would be El. But it says, in the beginning, Elohim. And that plural subject, plural subject, is used with a singular verb, created. So you got a plural God, but he's doing a singular thing. Because we don't see verbs as singular and plural, but in Hebrew they do. So created is a singular verb there. Now, isn't that interesting? Right in the very first word of the Old Testament scripture, we have a plural God. Actually, we have God in create. Well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Because it says, and the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. Who's that speaking of? 
God the Holy Spirit. Um, also, we have such verses in Genesis chapter 1 as God saying to himself, let us make man. See, if you talk to yourself, that's biblical. That's good. <laughs> God says, uh, let us make man in our image. Now, who is he talking to? This is before man was created. He's not talking to the angels because we're not made in the image of angels, and he would not put himself on the same level with angels, saying, let's make them like us. Well, he's not the same as angels. Angels are created beings. There's only two other people he could be talking to. I was going to say one other, but he was talking to two other people, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Also, it says in John, uh, Genesis 3:22, again, God is talking to himself. He says, you know, this is after man sinned and um, had the knowledge of good and evil. He says, hmm, behold, the man has become like one of us, with a capital U. All right, and that goes on and on throughout the Old Testament. Um, furthermore, Deuteronomy 6.4, very, very important scripture, which the Jews use, the Jewish people use Deuteronomy 6.4, which is called the Shema. The, sh the word Shema means here in Hebrew. Um, it's the same word we get the name Ishmael, means here. The Jewish people use Deuteronomy 6.4 to support their monotheism. It says, uh, here, you've heard this before, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In Hebrew, that's Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And they say, this is why we can't believe in the God of the Christians, because our God is one God. He is not God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Put that in the wrong order. But, um, so this is their big support for their monotheism. But we can shoot a hole right through that proof, because the word for one is echad, and it is the same, very same word, which is used in Genesis 2.24, where it speaks of a man and his wife, how many is that? Two becoming echad, one flesh. Two becoming one, same word. There's, it also is used in the, in the Old Testament when it speaks of a bunch of grapes being one. How many little grapes are on a bunch? Certainly more than one, right? <laughs> They're all different, but um, that's the word echad. Now, if the Holy Spirit had wanted to give the idea of oneness in its totality and absoluteness, you know, absolutely one and only one, then the Holy Spirit, you know, regarding God, if the Holy Spirit wanted to, to emphasize that God is only one God, then there is another Hebrew word which would have been perfect to use in the Shema, and that would be the word Yachid, because Yachid speaks of absolute, total oneness. It is the word which God the Holy Spirit used when God is speaking of his Son, when it says, the only begotten Son of the Father. That's the word Yachid. So don't you think that if God wanted to tell us that he was one and only one, he would have used the word Yahid. He didn't. He used the word Echad. So you see, the Jews really should believe in the same God we do. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's a big problem. You know, they don't. But if you're ever talking to a Jewish person, I hope you remember this and you can point this out. Now, 
for, for our human, finite, frail brains <laughs> to grasp the concept of a triune God, I know is difficult, is very difficult. So I believe that what God did to help us out in this uh, difficulty is that he gave us illustrations from his own creation, his own created universe, which would help us to better understand his own triunity. In fact, we really, and we studied this, if you haven't ever studied Genesis chapters 1 and 2 or 3, uh, we did a whole year on just Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and the books are available and the tapes are available in the back. It was very fascinating that he really did create a triune universe. Um, everything that consists in this, everything that this universe consists of is one of three elements, either space, time, or matter. Everything consists of one of those elements, space, time, or matter. How many is that? Three. Now let's take each one of those. Space consists of three elements, or whatever you want to call them. Length, breadth, and height. Time involves pr past, present, and future. Matter consists of energy, motion, and phenomena. I bet a lot of you didn't know that one. <laughs> I didn't either. Furthermore, there are three basic fields of activity concerning the Earth. The atmospheric heavens, the land masses, and water. Three. There are three divisions of the inner Earth. There's the outer mantle, um, the mantle, I should say, the outer core and the inner core. There are three types of creation life on Earth. We have unconscious life, that's the plants. We have conscious life, that's your, your animals. You know, dogs are, they, they do have a conscious, they don't have a conscience, they, they, are, they have conscious life, and then there is self-conscious life, and that's man. We can understand about ourselves. There are three basic types of forces and energies which interact in the universe, three and only three. There's nuclear, electromagnetic, and gravitational. There are also three basic components of the atom. And the atom makes, I mean, everything is made of atoms, right? You have, you all know this, protons, neutrons, and electrons. There are three movements of the Earth. It spins on its axis. It, as it's spinning, it also goes around the sun. And it also travels with our solar system around the entire uh, Milky Way galaxy. Three movements. There are three types of rocks on Earth. I mean, we could go on and on. There's igneous, sedimentary, and all you scientists, metamorphic, right. You looked at your notes. <laughs> there are three types of vegetation. Grasses, and this is right out of the Bible in Genesis 11 and 12. Grasses, herb yielding seed, and fruit trees yielding fruit. There are three states of water. You can have liquid, what? The gas, and solid ice cubes. <laughs> There are three types of animals. There are land creatures, air creatures, and sea creatures. And it goes on and on and on. And you can see I even have different things up here, what the Lord made on each one of the days of creation. And then we can consider man, God's greatest creation of all. Man was made in whose image? God. Now, if God was only one, we would be only one. But what are we? We're, I'm one person, but within me are three, what would you call them? Three 
parts, body, soul, and spirit. So isn't that, I mean, God is triune and he made his whole universe triune and he made us triune. Um, all right, so he is, he is eternally God, he is equally God, and he is essentially God. We learn all these things just in the first two verses of, of uh, John's Gospel. Essentially God, we get that from where it says, and the word was God. That phrase means that in his essence, he, in what he actually is, in, in, the, in, in Christ's nature, in his attributes, in his personality, in his characteristics, he is, Jesus is all that God is. All of God's essential characteristics are in Christ. That's why it says in Colossians 2.9, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead exists bodily. I didn't say that right, but for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, this is the third time, then, in, in John's first verse, just in that first verse, not even the second verse, the third time that he declared the deity of Jesus Christ. Do you think he wants us to understand that Jesus is God? Absolutely. In the beginning was the Word. That tells us about the eternal existence of Christ, right? And you can't be eternal unless you're God, all right? Then the Word was with God, tells us that Christ was part of the eternal triune Godhead. And now this third phrase makes it really clear, doesn't it? The word was God. That's the clearest of all declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. Yet in spite of the clarity of this very foundational truth of Christianity that Christ is God, in spite of this, you know that there are many people, even in churches, who refuse to accept this foundational teaching of the Word of God. I have found in the years I've been teaching ladies Bible study that many women come up to me and say, Jesus is God? I thought he was just, you know, the Messiah. <laughs> well, that's what the Jews thought, too, that he was just going to be the Messiah. You know, some great prophet that would come and save them, but not God. They misunderstood that. But no, he is God. Unitarians even go so far as to claim that worship of Christ is idolatry. And you probably know this, but the Jehovah's Witnesses had to even pervert their, um, the meaning, the, the original meaning of the Greek words. You know, the, Greek, the New Testament is written in Greek, so they have had to pervert the, the meaning of the Greek text of Scripture, which is found in John 1.1. And they've come up with their own translation so that they can circumvent Christ's deity. And if you ever have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door and you show them this verse, they'll show you your Bible and say, no, 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 it doesn't say the Word was God. It says the Word was a God. But I have looked it up in the Greek, and that is not what it says. It's, and, of course, they make their God with a little g. But um, you, there's other ways you can even use their Bible to show them that Jesus is God, but that's another story altogether but the Jehovah's Witnesses definitely um, any actually all false teachers we had a man in our church last night talk, talking about um, Islam all false teachings will deny the deity of Jesus Christ this is a foundational doctrine of our our faith 
and we need to understand it. We need to know how we can support it. Not only does John 1-1 claim Christ's deity, but uh, so do many of his names. For example, one we've already talked about, Emmanuel. That's one of his names, and it means God with us. Not, not a great prophet with us, God with us. Also the name um, Alpha and Omega we've talked about. That speaks of one, you know, from the, begin the beginning and the ending. That's a name for God. And Jesus himself said he was the resurrection and the life. You can't be that without being God. He also is called the Word, which we explained was a title for God. And, and there are many, many others. Furthermore, Christ himself claimed deity. He said in John 8:58, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, what? I am. Now, you can't be the I am before Abraham and just be a Messiah. You have to be God. He also said in John 10:30, this is a real clear statement, I and my Father are one. And uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, declared the deity of Christ when he said Christ was in the form of God before his incarnation. Timothy said that God was manifest in the flesh. And these and many, many more scriptural proofs make it impossible, really, for men, especially Christians, to excuse their rejection of the deity of Jesus Christ. You can't really be a Christian and deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 2 of John's account essentially says the same thing that we've already um, stated. It just repeats it. It says, the same was in the beginning with God. That's a repeat of the truth which we found in verse 1. Now, we're oftentimes going to find that John uses repetition in his gospel and in his epistles that he wrote as well. Uh, repetition of truths helps to demonstrate three things. And this is why it's so important when we're teaching that we repeat truth. This is why um, the Bible repeats a lot of things over and over again. And this is why it's important when we teach our children. You have to keep repeating the same thing, right? But that's good. That's the way people learn. That's the way we learn is repetition. Repetition helps to demonstrate the importance of that truth that we're repeating. It helps to emphasize the absolute certainty of those truths, and it helps to clarify those truths. Sometimes you can say the exact same thing, but change your wording, say it a little bit differently, and it helps to clarify that truth. So then, in the first two verses of John's Gospel, he very clearly spelled out for us the relationship of the Word to the Heavenly Father by succinctly stating, you know, in very simple words, telling us that Jesus Christ is eternally, equally, and essentially God. Now, how could anybody get all... I mean, it took me how many minutes? 30 minutes to say all that, but look how he said it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See what I mean when I say foundational, doctrinal, profound truths, but in such simple language that even a little child could understand it. That's, that's the beauty of God's Word. Okay, we talked about the Lord's person in verses 1 and 2. Now, where's my outline? I've lost it. I always do that. I bury it in my pile. Um, we're going to talk about the Lord's power and in this we're going to look at his power the, the lord's relationship to his creation and the lord's relationship to man first of all we're going to look at his power in creation 
the Apostle John actually refuted the entire teaching of um, evolutionism in one simple, <laughs> one simple sentence, one simple verse, and that is found in the third verse of his account. What did he say? All things, this refutes evolutionism, okay? All things were made by him, the Word. We already discussed the fact the Word is Christ. And without him, now this is repetition, okay? First of all, he said it in a positive sense. All things were made by him. And now he, he switches it over and says it in a negative way. He does, John does this all the time. Now he says, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he said the same thing twice in just two different ways. Now, the Greek word for all things, what's it say was made by him? All things. The Greek word is panda. You would spell it just like panda, panda bear, P-A-N-D-A. That's how it's pronounced. It refers to, guess what? All things. <laughs> down, down to the most infinite detail of creation. How, how detailed can we get? I mean, we can go into the atom and just go infinitely down, down, just like you can go infinitely up in creation because there's no end to the universe. They keep finding more and more and more and more galaxies and it just goes, it keeps expanding. They also, did you know that under the microscope there's no end? You can go and go and go and go and go infinitely small. You could, they've never gotten to the bottom of smallness. Um, but this all things, panda, means all things. All things were um, created by him, by the word, by Jesus Christ. So John tells us that Jesus is the creator. Everything in existence was created by him, and without him, there would be nothing in existence. And this fact is also affirmed by the Apostle Paul. In case it isn't enough that it comes from John, Paul tells us. He says in Colossians 1, oh, here's, here's Christ creating the world. And uh, we'll get to that. Let's see. Is that number 19? No, let me stay here. All right, Paul says, Paul tells us in Colossians 1:16, for by him Christ were all things created. He uses the same word, panda, for all things. All things, and now he gets into detail, all things that are in heaven, all things that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, now this is talking about the spirit world too, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, now in case we didn't get it, he says it again, all things were created by him and for him. Did you ever wonder why God made the aardvark? Did you ever wonder why God made fire ants? <laughs> My son has been just having a terrible time with fire ants. He said, he said, I don't understand why God made these stupid things. And I said, he made them for himself. Somehow or another, he gets pleasure out of fire ants. Maybe he sees pleasure, gets pleasure in seeing us dance around in pain. I don't know. No, I don't mean that. Um, but all things were created not only by him, but for him. Now, did you ever wonder what your purpose in life was all about? Why are you here? Is it for yourself? No. You were created for him. Now that gives you purpose, doesn't it? You were created to give Christ, God, glory with your life. So what are you doing with your life that he gave you, that he wants you to live for him? Actually, he takes pleasure in you. That's why he created you. He created you for himself. He enjoys you. He loves you. 
He loves you so much, what did he do? Went to an old rugged cross to die for you. But that can give your life a whole new perspective. To have created, now in case you didn't get this one, but to have created the entire universe and all that it contains in all of its manifold beauty, you know, all of its originality, all of its complexity, all of its uniqueness, that speaks of power beyond our comprehension. Um, <clears throat> I should have had that up there too. The Lord Jesus is all-powerful. What's another word for it? All-powerful? Powerful. Omnipotent. He is omnipotent means he is all-powerful. There is nothing that he cannot do except sin or tempt us to sin. Did you want some mother in here? Beats? Okay. Natalie. So there's nothing that he can't do. So, you know, when we remember this, when we remember that he is the all-powerful creator God, and we get into our look at some of his miracles, for example, when he, the first miracle he ever did was turn water into wine, or when we see him calm a storm, the winds and the, like this hurricane coming through, I hope it doesn't hit us, but he could calm that in an instant, or when we even see him raise the dead. Put that in perspective. That was a piece of cake. I mean, that's nothing for the Creator God who made everything that exists, the source of life itself. It isn't a big thing for him to change water into wine. None of his miracles are a big thing when we remember who he is. So therefore, it shouldn't be difficult for us to believe in them if we believe the foundational truth of the Bible, the beginning of John, that he is God. By the way, John's statement concerning Christ as creator doesn't exclude the fact that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were also involved in creation. In fact, all three members of the triune Godhead were involved in creation. And interestingly, the repeated words that we find in Genesis chapter 1, you know where it says, God said, you know, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be this, and there was that. It's repeated over and over and over again. In those two words right there, we have two members of the uh, Godhead involved in creation. We have God, and we have a spoken word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as I said earlier, we know the Holy Spirit was involved because it says the Spirit of God moved across the face of the water, so he was involved as well. And we find this same truth... <clears throat> um, given to us in other scripture as well because in Psalm 33 6 for example it says by the word of the Lord the word of the Lord Jesus Christ the word and the Lord God were the heavens made also Ephesians 3 9 Paul says God who created all things by Jesus Christ anyway when we think about this all of this all these truths once again the humility and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes very apparent when we realize that all he, although he is the creator of everything, he was willing, think of this, the creator God was willing to humble himself by being fashioned in the likeness of men. You know, if you were God, it'd be very difficult to want to come and live in one of these frail, decaying, earthly temp tabernacles, you know, made out of the dust of the earth. 
but he was willing to do that, to be made in the likeness of men, come to earth and be obedient to the will of his father, even to the point of death, and even to the point of a very shameful death, you know, the death on a cross. And why did he do that? Why, why did he come? When he came, he already knew that the world he created would reject him. But he came anyway. He allowed the world and the men that he had created to reject him. Now that is not only true humility, but that is genuine love. Is it not? I thought I had another picture, but I don't. That is not only humility, but it is love. That is unconditional agape love. And Christ is a gentleman, by the way. He never, ever forces his way into any heart. That's why it says in Revelation 3.20 that he stands at the door and does what? Knocks. He wants us to invite him in. He doesn't ever barge his way in. He was, he was the same way when he came into the world. He came in in a gently, gentlemanly manner. The world had to want him. You know, the world had to accept him, but it didn't. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Well, the last way we're going to look at him is um, in relationship with man, and that we find in verses 4 and 5. Let's look quickly at verses 4 and 5. It says, In him, still speaking about the Word, Jesus Christ, in him was life. Where does life come from? Christ. And the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. In these verses, we read about the Lord's power of communication. The Word, our Lord, is said to have power in communicating life in verse 4 and in communicating light in verse 5. We can be certain that only in Him, in Christ, can true life, can eternal life be found. Without Him, men are eternally and hopelessly lost. But the Lord God sent his Son as a bright ray of light and hope for all of us who had no hope. Just as the Son, S-U-N, was created to bring light into this, the darkness of this world, uh, so Christ, the S-O-N, was sent to give light to the darkness of human souls. Since life and light are the opposite of death and darkness, right? John is telling his readers in these two verses that Jesus Christ is the very thing that they need the most. What, do, what does death and darkness need the most? Light and life. The world may offer its many substitutes for Christ, for life and light, but ultimately every single one of those substitutes is going to end in death and darkness. So after an individual comes to the light of Christ, then he receives the life of Christ. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Don't you just love those verses? Wonderful verses. Probably some of the most wonderful in all the scripture. In addition to giving the saved sinner eternal life, the Lord Jesus provides men with the power to, uh, I mean, it would, it would be enough if all he gave us was eternal life, but he also gives us the power to live our current lives 
abundantly, you know, and joyfully and victoriously. Isn't that wonderful? Not only does he give us eternal life, he gives us the abundant life, the joyful life. He said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it, what? More abundantly. He said in, um, oh, I'll skip that. That was in John 10, 10. So the sole purpose for Christ, the Lord's incarnation when he became man was to provide life for those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, those who are dead spiritually. And all men are born dead in their trespasses and sins because we inherit the Adamic sin nature from Adam. But it, even if we didn't, it wouldn't take us too long before we also sinned just like Adam. We not only inherit sin, but we are sinners. So um, if, if he could not have provided spiritual life to those spiritually dead, then his incarnation and his death were both in vain. If he couldn't give us life, being, coming to earth and taking on the form of a man and then going to the cross and dying, that would have been for nothing. But he did. He does have the power to give us life, eternal life. Scripture tells us that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is where? In his Son. The fact that darkness now enfolds um, the children of Adam's fallen race is very, very evident in our world today. How many of you think we are living in very dark times? I mean, all I got to do is turn on the news. We are living in a very dark world, and it's getting darker. It's going to get a whole lot darker, especially after the church is removed. There are billions, literally billions of people. They say now the population is about 7 billion. There are billions of people today who are living in darkness. Some are living in the darkness of their religious minds, and they are deceived by their misplaced trust in idols, or in rituals, or even in uh, Christendom and church attendance, or um, strange superstitions, or um, their own good works. Many, many people deceived by thinking they can get to heaven by their own good works. Or by maybe they're deceived by false prophets, because there sure are a lot of them around, too. Others are living in the darkness of their philosophical minds, speculating in vain, you know, about the ultimate nature of things. Some people are, are, are so, what does the Bible say um, in their wisdom that they became fools or something like that? It's true. They think they're so wise, but they're really fools because the fool has said in his heart there is no God. There are also those around us who are steeped in the darkness of their carnal minds. And boy, that's one thing you really see if you turn on the television. Uh, people who are just entrenched in their destructive lust in, in their greed. And also there are those who are entangled in the darkness of their scientific minds. These are the other crowd that think they are so smart that they have disillusioned themselves about the beginning and the creation of all things. The goal of the prince of darkness, who is Satan, his goal is to envelop this world so completely as to prevent the light of God's truth from ever penetrating the souls of men and women. However, this wicked goal goes beyond the ability of the power of darkness to accomplish fully. Now, he has gotten this world pretty dark, 
at times, for example, in the Dark Ages, and for example, um, on the day the Lord was crucified. But the darkness has never overtaken, even in the end times, in the tribulation, it's going to get very, very dark, but it will never completely overcome the light. Light, all it has to do is have one little beam. You know, like if this tornado, if this tornado, if this hurricane hits, I've been without power, and I'm sure you've been. I live way back in the woods, and when I lose my power, I can't even see at night my hand in front of my face. I mean, it is really, really dark. But all I have to do is turn on one little candle or one little flashlight, and who wins the victory? <laughs> the light wins. It just penetrates right through that darkness. Light is much greater than darkness. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Um, it says in John 1, 5, And the light shineth in darkness. The light is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the light of the world. And the darkness comprehended. Now that sounds wrong. It sounds like the darkness didn't understand it. That's true. The darkness didn't understand the light. But this word comprehended also in the Greek means over, overpowered it not. The darkness did not overpower the light. And then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, this is in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So when we in faith, in G by faith in Jesus Christ, are no longer walking in the darkness of our ignorance about him, about God, but when we know the truth and we are then set free we are brought out of the darkness of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God's glorious light. And then, the more we develop our relationship with the living word, Jesus Christ, through the written word. And what is the written word? It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This is our guide. This is our flashlight through this dark world. The more we develop our relationship with the light of the world, using the, the, the light of the world, and you know, talking to the Lord in prayer, then the greater the light of truth is going to not only be revealed to us, but the greater it's going to shine out from us. Because the more light we take in, what do you think happens? The more light we give out. Jesus said um, that we should let our light so shine before men that they might see our good works and do what? Glorify our Father which is in heaven. To the world, it seemed as though the power of darkness had its victory at Calvary when the true light of the world supposedly went out. However, on resurrection morning, that true light again blazed forth in triumph forever. Forever, forever. Atheism, liberalism, communism, demonism, new ageism, humanism, secularism, whatever ism of darkness man might invent will never ever be successful in blotting out the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's good news, isn't it? That is really good news. Ultimately, we know we are on the winning side. I like how Jack Wordson with Word of Life always used to sign his letters. He always put on the victory side, and then he put Jack Wordson. We are. If you're a Christian, you're on the winning side, no matter how dark this world is going to get. Well, in closing, it has been said that the first five verses of John's gospel could have been written in gold. And I tell you in the notes that I really tend to agree with that.
very important foundational verses of the scripture. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do lift our hearts to you in praise for the fact that you loved this sinful world and we sinful people so very much that you sent your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal yourself to us so that we might be able to know you in a deep and in a personal way and that we might come to understand who you are and what you are like. So, we, Father, we praise you for sending us the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, to bridge the, the tremendous gap which sin had created between you and us, between the infinite and the finite, between the Creator and the created. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ and in Him alone are all of the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. We thank you that we can have total confidence and assurance in Him in whom we have placed our faith and trust. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word so that we might grow spiritually and become more Christ-like. And Lord, I just thank you for every woman here. I pray she will stick this out. Be faithful, Lord, to study your word, to get to know you better, because I know that through this she will ultimately be blessed. Give us more light each and every day. Help us to be witnesses for you of light to this dark world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.